in uh, organizations, it's often to talk about things that are mission-centric. Mission critical is often a term used. And uh, another term similar to it is mission drift. And uh, whether it's a business or a nonprofit organization or even a church, it's important regularly to think about what is the primary mission of this organization? Why does this organism exist? And uh, if that organization, the church, particularly, if it's not careful, it can be doing all sorts of other things and drifting away from its primary focal point. And part of what we are called to as a church, as uh, Tom Wright, theologian, talks about, is uh, we are called, he sums up the, the church's life in two terms. He says, we are called as people of God to worship together and to be on mission together. Worship and mission are the two primary outgrows of a church where to put God center in our life and do that together. And then because of that, we have our missional engagement focused and informed and it shapes who we are and who we are becoming. When Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, go and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. You can open to Acts chapter 8. And I just want to kind of talk to you for a minute before we get there. Because when Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, some of his very last words on this planet, before he ascended to go back to be with the Father, were these. He said, stay here in Jerusalem. He was talking to people, real people, in a real historical context, in a real city on planet Earth. And he spoke to them and he said, you are to stay here until power from on high has come on you. And once that happens, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, this place where you are. And then in Judea, Samaria, the two very neighboring regions. And even to the ends of the earth. And that is still the great commission of God to the church and for individual believers like you and me. That we're to be on mission with God. And we're to be focused right where we live, not to the neglect of the ends of the earth. Because we're to be both and kind of people. But we also cannot focus on the ends of the earth to the neglect of what we are called to be and to do right here where we live. And this coming year, I'm so enthused about where I sense the Lord leading us for a renewed sense of local engagement. But I'm equally enthused about where I sense the Lord beginning to give us renewed and refreshed traction on a global season of missions to come. And that starts by uh, this five-person team that's heading to North Africa the day after Thanksgiving. You're going to see them up here in a few minutes. We're going to pray for them in advance of their journey. But part of the reason that they are going to that place in the world is because Doug and Leah, two people that were part of this church for a couple of decades, their children grew up here, now live and serve the Lord there. And so we, as a heart-connected church with them, are going to revive and to deepen our sense of connection and renewal with them. And so we're going to talk more about that. We have two other families around the world. You saw a video of one, Al. They live uh, in Krakow, Poland. And Tanner and Andres Merle, their two children in Brussels, Belgium. And so we are praying that the Lord would lead us as a church to reinvigorate our relational connection to them in in, in ever-deepening ways. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to us that you, once you receive power, you will be my witnesses. And we know what a witness is. A witness is somebody who, who simply shares what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have experienced. I stood on the street corner in Phoenix, Arizona, the 
one time I've ever actually spent time in Phoenix. I liked it. It's a pretty good place. And I stood, I was at a conference, and I was out on my lunch break, and I was standing at an intersection about to cross the street to go to lunch. And as I stood there, I was looking this way, and I hear, off to this side. And I turn around, and a car was sliding right toward me. Now, I'm not very fleet of foot. I was paralyzed. This car is bearing down on me, and I said, oh, Lord, this may be it. Because <laughs> I cannot get out of the way fast enough. And thank the Lord, I mean, it stopped about ten feet from me. And uh, I wasn't exactly an eyewitness, but I certainly experienced a certain level of fear and anxiety, and I, I could discern what had just happened. I, I was a witness to the police when they came out to, to talk about what had happened, and I was able to give my recording of what I had heard, what I had seen, and they took that together with other reports and because we were witnesses of what happened. When Jesus calls the church, but not just the church generally, when he calls you and he calls me to be a witness of what he has done in your life. It is something that we get to engage in joyfully, and he equips us to do it regularly. That's what I want to talk to you about. Can we do that for a few minutes? Because after he says that, in Acts chapter 8, open your Bibles there if you haven't yet. Acts chapter 8, this is where the mission really finally begins. Jesus said in Acts 1, there are some things, really interesting things, all the Bible's interesting, really cool things are happening in the church, there's beginning to be an increased sense of persecution, that's not cool, but it's, it's so interesting to see how God works within it. And then we see the first uh, big persecution of the church, and we have the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the seventh who were first called in Acts 6 as a deacon of the church, and he is martyred at the feet of the man named Saul, who becomes Paul. We'll talk about him in just a minute. Here's what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 8, Stephen is being stoned to death because of his witness to Jesus. Sometimes that happens. That still happens around the world today. In fact, many of us have been praying for a group uh, in the Horn of Africa, in a, a, a predominantly Muslim country, who for the first time are gathering as believers outside that country to have training to, to strengthen their witness among their fellow believers. And they had to do it in secret. And they had to take different routes to get to their location. And some of them got bogged down because of some strife in their country. But they did it even today, just the last couple of weeks, out of fear of persecution. Not just that they'd be laughed at or even rocks thrown at them, but that they would be killed if they were found out. And so these things still happen for not all over the world, actually. This is what was happening to Stephen. And here, um, in this, it describes how those who were there put their, they took their coats off and laid them at the feet of a man named Saul as they stoned Stephen to death. Acts 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. 
Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I want you to hang on to that verse 4. Those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. We're going to come back to that in a minute. When did this mission begin? This was about two years after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. Acts chapter 1. When power comes on you, you will become my witnesses all around the world, starting right where you live. Two years later, this mission now begins in earnest. Who were the first people who did it? They were everyday people. These first missionaries, quote unquote, were everyday people. Sometimes we have the tendency to put missionaries up on a, a, a crazy high, inappropriate pedestal because we think somehow they're superhuman. Or that uh, uh, God is uh, uh, going to do uh, through them things that he, he couldn't ever possibly do through me. And that's to have a, a skewed view and understanding and perception of what it means to be sent by God. These were everyday people. They were people who had families. People who had real jobs. People who had real responsibilities. And these are the people that are scattered. Did you notice that who was it that was scattered? It was... It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't primarily the leadership of the church that, that then left Jerusalem to take the gospel. They weren't those who were particularly educated. They hadn't been seminary trained. They were everyday people, just like you, just like me. There were people that, that worried. There were people that had to leave things behind. There were people that had to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. That's what they were called to, and that is the kind of people who were those who were first sent, just like you and me. And right on the heels of this, some amazing things happened. Some of these amazing mission stories, Philip was one of those scattered. Right? All except the Apostles. The Bible's very clear. When this persecution in Jerusalem broke out, that everybody except the Apostles, these were the leaders in Acts chapter 15, these were the people, when there was controversy in the church and they were trying to make decisions about uh, something people were disagreeing on, they came to the apostles of the church. These were the leaders of the church. They were the one that stood and stood past, stayed in Jerusalem, and everybody else was scattered out. And what happens when they get scattered? The gospel goes with them. They go as witnesses to what they had seen and heard and experienced in their relationship with Christ Jesus, and they take that with them. I, uh, I served for a couple of years, uh, as you know, in, in missions in a very specific way. One of the things, one of the things the, the guy I worked with uh, said, you know, what he learned early in his mission experience, he said that missionaries are a lot like fertilizer. You pile them all up in one spot, and they begin to stink. But you spread them out, and they do a little good. Think about it. <laughs> These people from Jerusalem and this church were everyday people, and they were scattered. And what did they take with them? They took the power of God and the certainty of their testimony as they witnessed on behalf of the Lord Jesus to what they had seen, what they heard. One of those is Philip. Philip finds himself in Samaria. Where did Jesus say to be my witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Judea. The very first one who goes, he finds himself in Samaria, and he begins to, to see how God works through him, and demons are being cast out of people. And people, all of a sudden, people are beginning to take notice of this message of Jesus, this message of hope, and love, and new life, 
and healing is coming out of the mouth of Philip. And then God takes the same Philip and he sends him to the border of Judea. And there at the border of Judea, there's this international traveler. He's referred to in the Bible as the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's on, he's been in Jerusalem. He has an interest in, in he's pursuing God. And he's on his way back home to Ethiopia. And Philip is sent by God. And he's told very specifically, go stand by his chariot. Can you picture Philip? Can he just stands here? And he listens. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a scroll. And he's reading a portion of the Old Testament. And God prompts Philip's heart to ask him if he understands what he's reading. And he does. Philip asks if this man understands. And he says, I'm not really sure. And they begin this conversation. What is Philip able to do? He's able to bear witness about what he knows about Jesus out of what he's experiencing in Christ. And then if you keep reading, you get into Acts chapter 9. And another basic story about an everyday person pops up. It's a man named Ananias. You remember Ananias? He may not come readily to mind. But he is the one in Damascus, in Syria, 2,000 years ago. He stands there. He's described only as a believer. He's a believer of the church, that group that met in Damascus. And, and he is there. And all of a sudden, he gets this, this word from God. That the one who had been persecuting the church that we know as Saul was about to come to town and Ananias was supposed to go and meet him. Now, do you think that made Ananias happy? <laughs> he was like, yes! Ananias was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I've heard about Saul. I know that Saul is a great persecutor of the church. I know that Saul is an exec- executioner of those who claim the name of Jesus, if I reveal myself as a believer to him, I don't know what the repercussions might be. And God says, Ananias, go and do this because I have claimed Paul and he's going to be my special instrument in the proclamation of the gospel. And then, as a consequence, we begin to see in Saul's life, Paul's life, the great, great missionary journeys that we refer back to. But it was Ananias, an everyday believer, that God used to, to communicate the goodness of what had happened to him to Saul when Saul was walking on the, the path to Damascus, suddenly this blinding light from heaven, and he comes to him, and, and this voice from heaven says, Why are you persecuting me? And he scales from across Paul's eyes, and it is Ananias, relatively unknown outside of this passage. And he's the one that God speaks to to draw Paul, the most unlikely of converts, the most hard-hearted of people, the one who had spent his whole life and all of his work against the church and against Christ, now is Paul who's giving his life to Christ. And it is Ananias who is there, this everyday believer. My friends, missions is about everyday people. Missions is about everyday people with real jobs and real families and real responsibilities. Part of what God has for you and for me and our five-person team is to be engaged. Now, not all of us are going to North Africa, but there are still many ways that you can be involved both in this trip and I hope that you will be open and prayerful for future opportunities. That you would not put up obstacles where you would just out of hand dismiss 
The opportunity to go and to participate in different ways in God's great mission. That you would be open to it. That you would not say, well, I can't because. That your first response would be, Lord, if you would lead, I will. Because. What would you fill in the blank with that? Lord, if you lead me, I will. Because. Because I love you. Because you love me. Because if you call me, you will equip me. Because if you are guiding me, I trust that you will provide everything that I need along the way. It's not the excuses, it's the, the expectation of what God will do. If you're part of the five-person team, won't you come up here and be with me, Emily and David and Dean? Who else? Charles and Ken. I've got special chairs. <laughs> This is our team this time around. <laughs> they leave the day after Thanksgiving, November 23rd. Can we put the next slide up? November 23rd to December 1st. So I hope that as you gather around your Thanksgiving table, that you will remember to pray for these five. Look at their faces. Burn their images in your mind. And you'll be blessed. <laughs> but we, uh, we come today to pray for you, to send you out to thank the Lord for you, Charles. You are here, brother. I know uh, with your beloved Katie, and uh, you love her dearly, and uh, there are times when uh, our families have to sacrifice for uh, this collective sense of God's leading. And this becomes a team effort in a family, where a husband uh, is away from a wife, uh, away from children, whatever it might be, away from work responsibilities. Charles, you, you love this church. You love God's church, and you, you have, over the years, given your uh, very capable skills of love in providing a building and repairing things into this church building, and, and we're grateful for you, and grateful that you are going on this trip, and you said yes to the Lord. So thank you for that. David, I know you're married. You have uh, uh, some older children, one still here in high school in your home. I shouldn't call her a child. She's not a child. You other woman. Uh, but you uh, you also are leaving a family behind for a week. You're leaving your work uh, in analytics at UCSF. And I can't ever remember what it is. Tell me again. Data and analytics. He's told me three times what he does for work. And, and I, I like to remember. But, uh, uh, but you're leaving real work, world responsibilities, having to take time off of work. And, and we're grateful for your willingness to go. David is an avid swimmer. If you like to swim, he, you might often find him over at the Tampai pool. Uh, so you can join him there. Swam in high school college, I believe, right? Yeah. So pray for David. Pray for Charles. Pray for our brother Ken as he uh, is heading out. He's been married to Irene for 33 years. And uh, uh, what a joy he has been in our church life and giving himself in so many different ways of serving the Lord here. Uh, retired lawyer, practiced law for many years in San Francisco. And uh, we're blessed by you, Ken. And, uh, love our history. Loves reading about history. Uh, in fact, anytime you see Ken in some downtime, he probably has a book uh, open or tucked under his arm. So, Ken, we're afraid that we're grateful for your willingness to trust the Lord and go. The Dean. Hi. <laughs> the Dean is a grandmother. She has eight grandchildren. Um, she is uh, an avid. Uh, Exercising as well, loves tennis and running. 
Uh, and Bachi. And Bachi. Yeah, and Peter Bachi. Uh, she's a retired school teacher, and uh, she is uh, surrendering herself into this week-long trip to uh, enter into the adventure of what God has for her. And so we're going to be praying for you today and ongoingly for your trip. So we're thankful to you for doing this. Emily? Hi. Hi. <laughs> Emily has two grown children. Uh, Emily came to the church, became a member of uh, Tiburon Baptist Church many years ago, back when Barry Stricker was pastor. And uh, she was here for uh, many years and then moved with her husband and family over to El Sobrante or the East Bay. She lives in El Sobrante now and has been over there for about 10 years. And uh, the last year or so, a bit, that's about roughly right, I think, maybe a little longer, um, God has stirred her heart to, to come back here, though technically still a member. We talked about her renewing her membership, and that's something... Even though it's not called or uh, expected, but we thought it would be an interesting thing for us to do to deepen her uh, renewed connections with the church. And so uh, she comes, she uh, owns and operates a home health care business, and uh, it uh, focuses largely on uh, older residents with developmental disabilities. Is that right? Yes. Is that right? Uh, and so she's leaving uh, things behind in order to engage in this as well. And so this this is the look of missions engagement. It's everyday people with real world life and uh, engaging as the Lord has led. Uh, not superhuman, uh, wonderful people, but not superhuman. But with the power of the Lord they go and they trust God. They've been meeting, they've met many times, they've spent hours together in preparation for the trip. Uh, they have uh, uh, tried to build camaraderie as a team. Uh, they probably know each other a hundred times better now than they did uh, four months ago. And uh, they go, David is our team leader, you can be praying for him. But part of why they go is to go so that they can see and hear what God is doing there in North Africa. Where are the struggle or pressure points for Doug and Leah and others in their team so if they can come back and share that with us so that we can more intelligently and more in a focused way pray for their efforts and what they need. That they can sense and see what God is doing and perhaps ways yet unknown to us that God would have us as a church be engaged in that part of the world. And so we're praying for clarity. We're praying that, that their eyes would be open, that the Lord would would impress upon them and, and the things that they remember that they collectively would remember. And that through that uh, collective memory, uh, God would, would come back and communicate to us how we are to be involved in a more a specific way moving forward. So, they're leaving the 23rd. I keep saying that because I want to invite you to be in prayer for them. Because it's not just these five who go. Our whole church... Goes. And even though you and I are not boarding an airplane, we still go with them in prayer. And so they need your prayers. They need your prayers so that when things don't go according to plan, they would have the grace to adjust. When flights are delayed or connections are missed or luggage gets lost, it's just all of a sudden getting sad. <laughs> Whatever might happen, that they would take it as Whatever is from the hand of the Lord, and they would see where God is in the midst of those unexpected realities. That they would be good listeners to Doug and Lita and the team there. That they would they would really sense the impression of the Holy Spirit. So that's one way. We go as a church with them in prayer. And so I want to encourage you this week to, to 
Maybe put in your phone calendar or some other way reminders to be praying for them from November 23rd to December 1st. There's another way that you can literally go with them on this trip, and that's uh, by uh, participating in the gift collection. As you exit the sanctuary, if you turn right, uh, there is a table there. There are gift tags on the two little miniature Christmas trees, and you can take one or 15 of those home today. And these are requests from those who are working as part of Dougie Lee's team about things maybe, uh, things maybe they can't find very easily where they live, things that make their creature comforts, uh, reminders of home, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, you can take a few of those, go this week and shop for them, but we need to have them back here by Wednesday. So if that's something you'd be willing and able to do, uh, you can take as many of those as you like today. If you take them, though, please... Fill them and bring them back, and we're going to try to supplement whatever is not able to be done. So that's a real tangible way that you can have a part in this trip. We want to pray for you. Uh, This is a very common thing in the early church. They would lay hands on those who were heading out. Now, that would be difficult for all of us in this moment to come and lay hands on them. But here's what I'd like to invite you to do. If you would stand, if you're able, and just extend a hand as a symbol and a symbolic measure of your extending your hand to them and join me in prayer. Let's pray for them. Father God, we, we thank you for the call into missional life. You are a mission God, and as we enter into the Christmas season, we are reminded that you are the first missionary in the sending of Jesus into your broken, dark world. A world that we've corrupted, and one that you are redeeming. And you do that through Jesus. And it's because Jesus came at Christmas and gave us the great commission at the end of his earthly life that we now step forward continually, year after year, in the missions engagement. We we support missions financially, we want to support it through prayer, and, and we want to participate in it. And we do that with this team. We pray for Charles and David and Ken, Nadine and Emily. We ask you to fill them, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would empower them with everything that they need to fulfill that which you have prepared ahead of time. That they would see the wonder of how you work through them. And God, all of our hearts, we pray that you would would teach us to to be open and responsive to the call of the missions when it comes across our ears and hearts. And, And in those moments, God, when you prompt us to say yes... And the flood of reasons come into our mind and hearts about why we can't. Would your Holy Spirit continue to draw us and to teach us and to communicate to us? We pray, God, that you would give them the grace that they need as they go, this group, these five particularly. That for those unexpected things, the undesired things, the the challenging parts of their journey, that they would see your handiwork in it. That they would trust you. That they would come back and their faith would be deepened. That their wonder at how you work in different places among different peoples would be deepened. That you would give them insight into Doug and Lita and their needs, into the needs of the team, and into the ways, God, that your spirit is working among North African peoples. And may they come back with the ability to communicate what they've seen and experienced so that we as a church would be stirred anew to engage to the ends of the earth. Help us as we engage more intently right here where we live also. 
We want to be a both and kind of mission people. Help us to do that, we pray. Hold them in your love and grace. We ask it now. In the name and for the sake of Jesus, the one who came at Christmas, who died on Good Friday, and who rose again on Easter morning, and then commissioned his church to go into all the world, to be filled with the power from on high, and to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. It's in that name that we pray together. Amen. All right, you guys are off the hot seat. Steve, if you come back, I want to invite you, since you're standing, find your music sheet. We're going to sing our last song together as a response of obedience back to the Lord. I think it's in the hymnal. Which, which number is it, Steve? 437. 437. Open your hymn books. 437. Let's sing.